For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live. Fragments of silicon now with 100% more chance of freezing your ass off. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the first Fragments of Silicon of 2015. I'm your host, Adam, and welcome to your weekly vertical slice of gaming goodness and geek culture. Yeah, and it's cold out. Less cold where I am because I, uh, I live in Florida. Oh, the, temp- the temperate part of Florida, so it's still kind of cold here. Like, okay, if it's <laughs> above 30, you don't get to bitch. If it's below 30, you still don't get to bitch because it's colder here. <laughs> well, how cold is it where you are? Uh, right now, I believe it is like 10, and it's going to get colder overnight. Earlier today, the wind chill was almost 20 below. I think I beat all of you. <laughs> I don't think it's a competition. <laughs> well, if it was, I'd be winning. Well, inland of here, I think it's forecasted to get to 50 below tonight. Yeah, you touch your warm up. I feel like going, no, this is not a competition that anyone wins. <laughs> yeah. yeah even, even if you win, you still lose. More or less. Anyway, I'm your host, Adam, and with me is, well, basically the new normal. Now, uh, joining us is uh, Keith. Uh, hey. Ogre. Wake the fuck up. No. <laughs> uh, Petty Sam? I mean, <laughs> I'm still cold. <laughs> and Gollis. Hello. So a couple of notes. Uh, Mac is having, uh, you know, job issues again. You know, one of his jobs is moving his hours around, and so he's going to be a bit intermittent for God knows how long. Now, Naka likewise has a still has an enormous workload, and he will, you know, he will pop up if he can uh, manage it. But don't expect a lot of that in the next few months. So, yeah. So this is basically our cast. Now, as uh, Petty Fan and Galax are on staff permanently now. Woo! You guys hear my fancy voice a lot more. You've been promoted. <laughs> you guys are promoted to temporary, temporary permanent staff members. <laughs> Does it come with a plaque and a locker this time? No. Uh, uh, sure. No. Yes, it yes, comes with a glass yes, they're made out of data, so you can't put anything into them. Alright. It comes with a glass of water and an envelope with a suicide pill on it. And the, <laughs> then the envelope has the date of your firing. Oh, look at that. It was yesterday. <laughs> well, then, that was dark. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see. 
How's everyone doing tonight? I'm a little annoyed myself because my check engine light of mystery turned on today, and I got to take it in. So, it's the is this a minor problem or is this something that I'm going to have to get rid of the car kind of deal? I hate those. I, so so do I. It's like it's probably nothing, but I gotta I gotta take my time out to fucking get it checked anyway because it's I don't, it's, it's Schrodinger's car. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, until, until until someone else looks under the hood, it might be dead, but it might not be. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so I got to call the mechanic tomorrow and schedule an appointment and all that fun stuff. So, uh, it's like, so more on that later. Anyway, so uh, Keith, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Um, uh, I bought a vape on Monday and. This is how it's done for me so far. I bought a vape and one pack of cigarettes. Uh-huh. That, pack of, that pack of cigarettes is sitting in front of me. There are still five cigarettes in it. I tried vaping a, a little bit before I quit smoking entirely. Uh, see, I, I went ahead and I, I bought a nice $60 job. Um, you can make your own flavors and stuff. Like I've got like, like three parts regular tobacco to one part spearmint. <laughs> it's actually kind of smooth. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I never got into the flavored stuff myself. Um, well, I said that I bought as this sixty-dollar kit came with two tips so that I can mix different stuff in them or whatever. One battery, a charging kit, a lanyard so I can put the thing around my neck, and a suction cup that I can like stand it up in or stick it to a wall or something. All right. Now, is this one of those things that looks like a cigarette or does it look like a pen? No, this thing looks like a great big fucking pen. Hmm. I guess it's more, would people recognize this as an e-cig or not? They, they would have, I mean, it around my neck. This thing is, is longer than my pencil, and it's about as big around as, like, a like a pen flashlight, a little bit, you know, a little bit larger. Mm. Uh, hey, it hits good, gives me good smoke, and it curbs my want to go, hey, I need a cigarette. And it's like, whatever the health risks of, a, of e-cig, they got to be better than cigarettes. Hey. It has less tar. I think something would have to be working very hard to be more deadly than cigarettes. Uh, I also, I finished off a very interesting first times type of commission. I did a POV piece for somebody Uh, where the idea is that you're like looking through the character's eyes and there's a mirror reflection and all this stuff and I did the whole thing. It was was definitely R-rated, but at the same time, it was kind of satisfying to finish because it was neat to see what I'd done with it all when it was finished. First first official drawing of 2015. Um, That and, of course, a Lavender's page, which counted as 2015. (laughs) Those are the two things I've done so far this year. Well, the year is only, what, a week old? Yeah, I actually we called today. Yeah. Well, no, we called, yeah, seven days today. (laughs) So that's actually pretty impressive for seven days. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, Ogre, how are things with you? I think a general consensus around this whole table is that it's cold. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh... Are you keeping warm? Uh, really, other than that, for recording-wise, we're just doing small stuff for the moment because 
We've done a lot of big projects lately. We deserve a fucking break. Yeah, I saw uh, I saw some of the comments in the Mega Man 2 video. Uh, like, apparently some people are thinking you're doing this because of a scheduling problem. Mm-mm. No, we're doing it because... We just got done with the Paper Mario series and all that other stuff in between, so... All right. We want a break. Fuck it. I mean, come on. Well, and I think also, Mega we'll, Man do, we'll do bigger... I think Nuggets still got bigger stuff down the road. It's just that for now, we just want small stuff. So, yeah, expect a lot of, uh, I don't know, what, eight video series out of you or, you know, something, 15, however, you know, don't. It it ain't going to be the huge, like, you have to have two playlists for the damn thing. (laughs) Right. I think Nuggets still burnt out from Persona 3. (laughs) I'm burnt out from it, and I never played it. <laughs> well, I mean, it took him a whole year to complete that game, so I'm not surprised. Uh, anyway, so, uh, Gallix, how are you? Oh, uh, I'm doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from the cold. Um, Death dice. <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, kind of anxiously awaiting the January DLC for Hyrule Warriors, and... Uh, um, for Pathfinder, I've been running the game for a couple sessions now, and uh, I think my experiment with uh, game mastering has gone pretty well so far. You haven't killed a man out of spite yet? Um, no. Okay, then. <laughs> I guess it's my turn. Uh, yes. Got the results of my sleep study today. Ooh. Were you sleeping? Actually, not very well. Um, they said I have a mild case of sleep apnea, so they're going to, and part of my daytime sleepiness might be because of the medicine I'm on. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk to my neurologist about trying a different medicine. If that's not helping, in a couple months, I'm going to be having another sleep study, and I may be put on a CPAP machine, so, yay. Um, speaking of CPAPs, by the way, Kelly told me to tell you, because she uses one, if you have any questions, you can you can pester us and talk to her about it if you want. Ah. Yeah. Uh, several people in my family have sleep apnea. I got lucky on that regard. My, my grandmother had it, but she's passed away over a decade ago, so I kind of can't talk to her about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, my, all my, all the people who use it are very far away. Yeah. So it's not exactly a call to the, you know, let's call. But well, you know, good luck with that. Sleep apnea is nothing to uh, screw over. I think that yeah. that's one of the things that ultimately killed my father. And possibly may have actually killed my grandmother. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Sleep apnea is. Serious business. Yeah, seriously, guys, all of you out there, if you're having trouble sleeping, go talk to a doctor and make sure you don't have this shit. Oh, uh, Dan, that's that's the thing after we do the interview. We're, ta- no, we're talking. Yeah, not- <laughs> they're like, wait, hold on. <laughs> yeah. We do a thing called the topic of discussion where we talk about some video game related topic and it just happened to be the virtual console this week. Got it, got it. Well, I should be able to comment as an educated observer of it. 
But yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so with that, we should move on to our guest this week. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, notable ones here. We are we have Tom Hap and Dan Alderman of Tom Hap Games. Uh, yeah, I'm Tom Hap. I'm the Tom Hap of Thomas Hap Games. Right. Dan, Dan is more like a what, what's the word for it? Like a consultant. Yeah, I'm a helper. Yeah. You're an indie marketer. Yeah, I, I don't know what to call myself. I think um, a lot of indie developers, um, obviously uh, understaffed, Tom is 100% of Thomas Hat Games, um, and also don't have a lot of experience with the business side of uh, games. Obviously, uh, very talented in developing and producing games, but um, so I'm, I'm trying to lend some expertise on the business side of things. Okay. Well, we'll get into that in a bit, but first let's talk about Axiom Verge. Now, uh, first of all, what is Axiom Verge? You know, uh, both what, what, what does that title mean and what is the game? All right. Well, the, the game itself is an 8-bit uh, style side-scrolling action-adventure or Metroidvania, if you will. Um, the actual name is kind of a little bit of nonsense, um, kind of some words I thought sounded cool, um, but uh, you know, it, uh, one major theme of the, the game fiction is it has to do with basically the rules making up reality, um, and another word for rule is axioms. So. Uh, you have a main character who's a scientist, and he, you know, uh, writes a scientific paper and that kind of thing. And um, so, you know, axioms are are another. They're kind of like theorems, you know. Um, so that's it. Kind of ties into there, but it it doesn't necessarily, you know, have a secret meaning. And okay, so you are developing what's called a you know, well a Metroidvania title. Those are pretty popular uh, these days, I, I know, because we've had several people on the show who've, who've been making a game like this. What are you doing to make your game stand out in the crowd? Um, so, you know, I began just by trying to make it a good game, um, but there is some additional kind of meta features. There's a glitch mechanic in there where you get a special weapon that allows you to glitch the enemies in the environment. So each enemy will have a different um, kind of property once you've glitched it, and you can use them to solve different puzzles or, um, you know, maybe just use them in combat to, you know, overcome other enemies in, in a clever or, you know, different way. Hmm. Uh, are you at all familiar with a game series called Dot Hack? Uh, yeah, I re remember that. Um, I, I didn't play it, but, yeah, I remember it was like a PS2 series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it kind of had that kind, uh, that kind of deal where you would, you know, hack the system to fight enemies and all that stuff. I mean, it's a completely, like, different game series than what you're doing. It, it's just interesting to see that mechanic in a Metroidvania title. Yeah. Uh, but, so, where did you first come across uh, the idea of Axiom Verge? Um... You know, generally, 
I think a lot of game developers in their spare time just kind of, you know, fiddle around, like, you know, trying to come up with game concepts. And usually what happens is you get tired of it or it turns out to be too much work or that kind of thing. Um, and Axiom Verge, you know, I was kind of expecting it to be another one of those, but, uh, you know, it started out just, you know, I got home from work and I would start putting together Photoshop files of level graphics and try and figure out what I liked and what I would like to see in a game. Um, and eventually I just kept on doing more and more of that and, you know, wrote up a design document and, uh, you know, before long I had most of the artwork already authored for it. So I just went ahead and started coding. There wasn't, there wasn't really, I don't think, a discrete moment where I was like, I want to make this thing called Axiom Verge and it's going to be like this. Mm -hmm. It was more, um, I just had a general idea that I wanted to make this adventure game where you explore and um, combat monsters and didn't really, uh, you know, didn't, didn't try to limit myself by coming up with one idea and then sticking with that for five years. Right. Yeah, so, so kind of going back to, uh, you know, this is Dan, by the way, um, chiming in on a, a thing you asked earlier about, like, that there's a lot of Metroidvania-style games out there, and Metroidvania is usually, you know, kind of defined by, you know, running around and exploring an area, uh, fighting enemies, and, and kind of um, exploring. Um, <clears throat> but when Tom, Tom was telling me, like, when he started developing the game, there actually weren't any um, Metroidvanias. Like, the whole genre had kind of been on a bit of a hiatus. I'm sure you could go back and find plenty of counterexamples. Um, but off the top of my head, there aren't a whole bunch that jump off, um, jump to mind. Um, and um, this entire time for, like, the last five years, Tom was working on it. Um, as a side project while holding down a full-time job so the weekends and the evening. So um, <clears throat> would have been nice, I guess, uh, in retrospect, if, if he just kind of quit his job early on and finished the whole game in two years and had been a, a little bit ahead of the curve. But um, I think there's, there's a lot of interesting things about it that have kind of germinated yeah. over those five years. Right. I think, like, when I – at the time I made it, I believe the last major – game of this genre was probably like Order of Ecclesia, like Castlevania, or okay. Portrait of Ruin. Right. And then, uh, when did you yeah. start the uh, game? Uh, it was like 2010. Uh, huh. That's actually getting around the time of Metroid Other M, I think. Yeah, I think Metroid Other M released, and uh, what, you know, during, while I was, I was making it, I think Guacamelee uh, released and then yeah. um, a whole bunch of other people started developing games like Anne and uh, mm -hmm. uh, what's, what's the one with the uh, 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 the dead suit you know, Chasm yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. you know it's, it sort of became like this uh, this giant um, you know uh, glut like once these games start coming out I'm, I'm thinking there's going to be there might be some you know Metroidvania fatigue, um, but there was no way I could have known that five years ago. No, well, it's like, yeah, like the, the Metroidvania thing is kind of the puzzle platformer or the, 
you know, like 2D or the retro pixel art platformer. You know, it's like trends are popular. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Just, you know, there is always like the concern that you might get lost in the shuffle. Right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting how those those trends just kind of cycle around. And it's not like there's any kind of like, you know, market research that everyone shares that like, this is the new hot thing that everyone should be going after and everyone's kind of rushing into it. It's, it's just interesting, this kind of like, um, you know, this uh, giant mind meld or, you know, whatever the, the zeitgeist is that people kind of come around to similar ideas. Um, but it's kind of interesting, like, I, I think, you know, when you talk about genres in general, and this isn't specific to Metroidvanias or, or uh, 2D puzzle platformers or anything like that, um, genres are a pretty wide category. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when you think of, like, you know, some of the games that we just mentioned, like Guacamelee mm-hmm. versus Chasm versus Axiom Verge, and they're totally, totally different games. Um, they share some similarities, um, but at their core, obviously, they're very, very different experiences. Oh, yeah. It's like uh, we've featured all of these games on our show at one point. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, and, yeah, like, uh, it, 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 you know, that's the important thing to remember about genres. There can be an incredible amount of variance uh, in between games. You know, it, they are unified by a, a certain standard of tropes. Speaking of genres, I, I recall an interesting conversation that happened on uh, the NeoGAF forum a co- uh, some months ago about Metroidvanias in regards to Axiom Verge. I, I remember somebody objecting to the term Metroidvania itself. You know, like, it, it, it's not a good descriptor for the, uh, for the genre or subgenre. W- would you agree with this? Yeah, I think it's just the word, you know, it was it was the first word that, you know, happened to come out to describe it. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's largely why I think it was like Scott Sharpie, mm-hmm. you know, coined the word. And I don't think he was trying to create a genre or anything. He probably just, you know, well, it's not- off the cuff and it stuck. Yeah, it's not the only genre this has happened to. Like, we still use the term roguelike. You know, that, that's not exactly the best describe, uh, descriptor of that genre. Well, rogue. Yeah, well, you, you, have to know what, yeah, you have to know what rogue is before you can really know what roguelikes are. You know, it, it was at one point that, you know, all first-person shooters were called Doom clones. But right. It's, that's kind of gone by the wayside. Right. And they will come up with another, you know, some kind of acronym. Yeah, uh, I'm sure um, these things evolve, these things, you know, change. But anyway, so, uh, Tom, walk us through uh, the development process of uh, Axiom. Like, you know, what does it take to design an area of Axiom? So, uh, you know, given the long development cycle, uh, I, I began basically with the visuals of the areas, so I would come up, I would make a mock-up of how I wanted them to look before I actually did any level design. So that means I created how I wanted the tile set to look, how I wanted the scrolling backgrounds to look, um, populated it with a bunch of enemy designs to see how they felt in there. 
Um, and I had I'd been doing that for several months, I think, maybe even a year before I actually broke out the tile editor and started placing tiles in, into the map and making levels. So it, it happened in different stages. Um, uh, I think you know once I did once I did the visual design, I think I made a overall world map was the next thing I did where I kind of laid out where each um, shaft and corridor and all the rooms would go before actually uh, going down to the details of what was in them. And that was because I wanted to figure out um, you know where where the choke points would be, where you need a particular item, and uh, you know where the places that you need to backtrack and so forth before I kind of lock everything in. Because once you draw the actually draw the tiles, it's now difficult to try to change anything because you know just moving a room around means you you need to change where the doors are, you know, change where the platforms are. So. Um, I mean, basically, I guess I did it from the most broad to the most narrow is how I, you tend to think of it. And uh, how long would a section usually last in terms of development? Uh, what do you mean by a section? Well, you know, like uh, completing a part of the game. You know, I guess, well, first of all, uh, do you handle the music of the game? I do. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's actually incredibly rare. Now, and I'm actually really interested to see, uh, hear about how you uh, do the music. Um, you know, it's uh, just kind of a coincidence that I, you know, had um, some, you know, interest in, in music as a hobby. So uh, I just kind of, I took some time off. I think after I had designed the level area, the, you know, the level, um, the world map, well, What's going on? Sorry, sorry. My wife would wanted something. I don't know what it was. Um, and the uh, the next thing I did was to you know try and come up with a theme for each area. And I basically just took a few months, I think like three months, and wrote most of the soundtrack then. Um, so you know, a lot of it is that. When you're when you get to the coding stage, you don't really want to stop and be interrupted by anything, because anytime you get interrupted, you you basically spend a lot of time trying to um, like remember what you were doing before, get back into it. You know, there's been studies that can you know it takes you know quite a while, and it's probably the most disruptive part of development. So it helps a lot when you have all the music and all the art assets ready. And you just start coding, and you're like, okay, I'm in area two now, and I already wrote the music, so you know, you just put it in there, and it's playing, and you don't have to worry about that. And all of a sudden, like, you know, stop from basically where you're doing math to all of a sudden having to break out your, you know, MIDI keyboard and sequence it. So, mm. and um, what kind of yeah. music are you going for here? Like uh, atmospheric, uh, I don't know, industrial, uh, you know, something adrenaline fueled. Right. Um, I think this is. I think it's basically just electronica. 
I don't know. Uh, I I read a preview recently that described it as chiptune, which yes, yes. Uh, there there are some uh, you know like square waves and triangle waves in there. I, I'm not sure it's you know I I definitely use like you know 48 kilohertz uh, stereo audio. You know I use it in a, a digital audio workstation with all kinds of you know uh, synth effects. So. Right. And it's not strictly chiptune, but mm -hmm. it, you know that might give you a feel. Right, and shifting focus for a bit, uh, Dan. Uh, yes. You know, uh, I would be remiss if not to, to ask a bit about your background. Yeah, for sure. Now, for those who don't know, your name has actually been mentioned on this show plenty of times. Oh yeah. Well, we have a lot of developers who worked on the Wii U. You now. And you know you you've been mentioned as helping them in one capacity or another. So for those who don't know, Dan is uh, was until about what six months ago the head of Nintendo's digital software licensing. Yeah, I guess that's that's probably a good way to to describe it. Basically, I I did um, I started this is I was there for about nine years and I left in August and in that time I I basically started the digital distribution business with WiiWare um, and uh, kind of decided that, you know, indie game development should be a big thing and should be a future thing that we support. Um, and this was, you know, at a time like um, Braid was, I don't think was out yet. Um, World of Goo was the, the first one, first really big indie hit on Nintendo platforms. So this was kind of before indies were, were a big thing. Um, and so I kind of got that program started at Nintendo and ran that for about nine years now. Uh, well, like, were you the driving force behind, like, WiiWare? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was pretty much me. Um, so there was already a digital distribution plan in, in process for virtual console. Right. Um, so the... Um, for people who aren't familiar with that, that's where you can download um, the classic NES, Super NES, Nintendo 64, that kind of, those games on the Wii. Um, and now it's also on 3DS and Wii U. Um, <clears throat> and so there was already a plan in place to set up a digital distribution system. And you have to remember, you know, it, it, it seems odd to think of a console without a digital distribution system, but at the time, um, it was it was still a, a fairly new thing. Um, all the consoles had it, but um, it was just kind of in formulation. So there was no plan in place for uh, non-classic games. So anything newly created, um, you know, what kinds of games would be created solely for digital distribution? And that's kind of where I came in. Um, so I didn't, you know, develop the infrastructure for it, but kind of set the set up the the strategy at Nintendo of America of like. You know, we have this infrastructure. Um, what do we want to do with it? What kind of policies do we want to have? What kind of content do we want to have? Um, and so I, I kind of decided early on that the main thing I really wanted to accomplish with it was, um, it, it sounds kind of trite now, but um, innovation. Because um, games were uh, really in a rut. Like everything was just, you know, you know, very, um, you know, we talked about genres and tropes and everything was very tropey, very 
Um, everyone was very risk-averse in terms of game design, and so I really wanted to see if removing some of the risk of like physical inventory and, and mass-producing disks and things like that, if that would open things up and free uh, developers to take more creative risks. And, and I guess I wasn't alone in, in that thinking because the whole indie scene kind of flourished with the advent of digital distribution. And that's why you know, nowadays you see so many different kinds of games um, um, that you never would have seen 10 years ago. Oh, yes, yes. Now, uh, uh, did you have much uh, problems with like uh, Japan in implementing these uh, systems? Well, um, there, there, were, there were some things that Japan would get involved with, uh, and then there were a lot of things that um, I was able to do on my own at, at the NOA subsidiary level. So the infrastructure was was all controlled out of Japan. So the user interface, um, the purchasing process, and that was probably one of the biggest frustrations was finding um, in, in the WiiWare days and, and also in the DSiWare days just how difficult it was to find the, the games. And once you found a game that you were interested in, uh, the process to purchase the game and download it and all of that, it was, it was really unintuitive. So that, that would probably be uh, one of the biggest frustrations. Um, another one I, I've talked a lot about is this idea of a performance threshold, which was um, uh, something that was um, instituted by Japan where um, developers had to qualify for rev share by uh, selling a certain number of units. And if they didn't sell that many units, uh, then they just didn't get any revenue from their game. And the idea behind it was to um, tell you know people who are interested in producing shovelware um, just to say like if you know your game is crap and you know it's not going to sell then just don't bother because you're not even going to get any revenue from it. Um, but unfortunately, it, it wound up being a policy that really wound up hurting a lot of developers who really were making decent games and um, just by virtue of the fact that it was. It was tough to find them. I think a lot of them suffered from that. And I do remember quite a bit of, uh, uh, well, shovelware on the WiiWare. Yeah, so it didn't even achieve the goal of keeping out shovelware. So that, that's kind of the thing that burns the most is, like, we had this thing um, that was set up to prevent uh, shovelware, but it came in anyway. And, and, and you know, it's interesting, though, because, like, um, you know, there's there's a couple ways to do uh, digital distribution. One is, you know, you could be a gatekeeper where people, um, developers have to submit their games, and then if a platform likes it, they let it in. Um, and then the other approach is just to say, you know, anyone who wants to make a game can just make it and let the, the marketplace sort it out. And um, Nintendo very early on was, was in the former camp where, um, you know, we all wanted to, you know, kind of, not set ourselves up as the arbiters of here's what is a good game and here's what's not a good game um, and kind of keeping people out. Um, but at the same time, it just let in so much trash and there wasn't a good way of sorting through it that it wound up just cluttering things up. Um, so I think ideally if, you, if you've got a really good system for um, discovery, then yeah, why not open things up and, and let all the ideas in? 
but without that um, discoverability, it just becomes a lot of noise. Discoverability is an issue. It's always an issue with these things. Also, you know, drip feed method versus opening the floodgates. Yep. These are arguments I've heard a lot lately because, like Steam, you know, Steam opened up its floodgates, and some people are happy about that. Some people are not. So, yep. You know. But anyway, so what led you to leave Nintendo? It's, you know, it's actually been something I had been thinking about for years. Like, I, I'd been interested, like, I talked with developers for years and years, and it always seemed so much more exciting what they were doing, um, mm. just kind of being entrepreneurial. Um, I, you know, I really like the idea of being super close to a game, because a lot of times I dealt with hundreds of games over the years, but always at an arm's length distance where I would, you know, hear on a maybe monthly basis or, or you know, quarterly basis about the status of some game or another. Um, but I really like the idea of kind of being much more involved in kind of the day-to-day -day process of, of bringing a game to market as opposed to overseeing a system where multiple games are brought in. <clears throat> and, you know, so I'd been thinking about it for years and years and, was always reluctant to. Um, and then one day I just kind of realized, like, if I don't actually just, you know, try to take some steps to, um, to do this thing and, and go off on my own and, and work directly with indie developers, if I don't do it soon, you know, I, I should just admit to myself I'm never going to do it and I'm just going to kind of keep going on the track that I'm on. And, you know, I kind of felt like I'd already learned everything I could learn uh, in that role, I'd accomplished everything I could accomplish. Um, so I just uh, kind of made up my mind. It was probably around uh, April of last year, April or May, and kind of made up my mind and, um, yes, and started the process. And, and it was interesting. Like once I kind of set the wheels in motion, like by registering an LLC and registering, registering a domain name, and kind of listing out all the steps I would have to go through and just kind of going through them, um, you know, all, a lot of the fear of going off on my own went away. And, and I just started marching through the steps. And, um, yeah, and, and uh, so haven't looked back yet. Um, um, I'm hoping um, Axiom Verge does very well, and, and Chasm, another game that I'm working on, does really well, so I don't have to go back and, and you know, go back crawling with my tail between my legs asking for my old job back. Um, so, so we'll see. I mean, that, that's the role of the dice, I suppose. And, uh, absolutely. Yeah. But if it makes you feel any better, you, you're not the only one who's in indie marketing. You know, my job is, uh, you know, I've met other people who do what you do. You know, and it's always appreciated, you know, making sure that these games get highlighted. But, uh, you know, that does, uh, you know, so what skills at Nintendo did you learn that will help uh, uh, Axiom Verge here in uh, Chasm, for that matter? Yeah, so um, I think it's, um, it's several things. Um, one is just having seen lots of games going through the process, so kind of knowing where the hangups are, um, what opportunities a lot of developers miss out on um, <clears throat> because they're maybe not aware of them or not planning for them. Um, and seeing a lot of uh, the mistakes that people have made, like um, being so focused on development that they forget to talk about their game and, 
and kind of make an effort to reach out to uh, to press and media um, so that people can become aware of the game. Because there are so many games out there that people just don't know about. And if they had known about it, um, would have absolutely loved the game. Um, and it's always sad to see like a great game that just nobody's ever heard of and it kind of dies on the vine. And you know, years later, people find out about it and I'm like, oh, that was actually pretty cool. And it's like, well, it's too bad because the developer um, has already shut down and you, know, you can still buy the game and, and play it, but you know, that ship has already sailed. So I really want to make sure that um, great games like Axiom Verge and Chasm, um, that everyone who would actually enjoy playing it has an opportunity to hear about it and, and, and learn about it. And then, you know, if it's, if it's not a game for them, obviously it's not a game for them. It's not every game is for everybody, but um, it's really difficult and challenging to, to break through the noise to make sure that you're reaching the people who really want to hear about it. Yeah, uh, certainly understandable. And speaking of marketing, so what is the idea behind this rolling preview uh, coverage? Yeah, so this is um, an idea that uh, Tom and I came up with. We were talking about um, different ways to um, kind of stay, um, stay in touch with people who are interested in the game and also kind of create opportunities for other people to hear about the game. <clears throat> so what we're doing is, so the game is, is fully playable from beginning to end. It's already, um, you know, Tom will probably cringe when I say it's done um, because in, from his perspective it's not. Uh, there's still a lot of polish to be done, but it's fully playable from beginning to end. Um, and so what we're doing is releasing uh, to select press and media a little bit of the game every month. So a little bit more, a little bit more. So the idea that we're hoping is that <clears throat> as more and more of the game is uncovered, that people will be, you know, kind of looking forward to that next uh, next edition of what's going to be coming out, and um, so they can see like what's going, what's going to be happening next in the story, what's going to be, um, you know, hopefully there will be some cliffhangers and surprises, so that every month there's there's a little bit of something new. Mm. And uh, do you include YouTube coverage in that? Yeah, there's, there's been a couple of really good things. Um, just uh, yesterday, actually, Colin Moriarty um, mm -hmm. did a, a Let's Play of uh, Slow Reveal number three. So we're up to Slow Reveal number three, which gives about 15% of the game. But since he hadn't done uh, Slow Reveals one and two, he just kind of started from the beginning. Um, so that was a great one. There have been a, a couple other... Um, interesting let's play. So if you if you look it up on YouTube, you can you can watch a few of those. Hmm. It's like huh. maybe that's something. Uh, I don't know. We got a couple of let's players on staff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, ogre. Uh, ogre, raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> if you're still awake. Yeah. Well, I raised my hand, but I guess you guys can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> or can we? And, you know, you can speak for not be weird in this regard. You know he likes Metroidvania titles, right? Yeah. 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 Basically, what I'm saying is this is the kind of game he might be interested in. I'm going to suggest probably yes. Yeah. 
you know, I guess we can run the idea by... Let's face it. You know, well, it's like, I'll be honest, he's probably going to do this game at some point. I mean, it's Metroidvania that meets .act. It's, like, engineered for him. But, uh, anyway, uh, so where where did Sony come into the picture? Um, so I guess that's that's a question for me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, basically, before uh, I when I when I was at the stage where you know I didn't have uh, a publisher or anything locked in, and I was still just kind of doing it as a hobby thing. I was trying to find you know how I could get funding, and I was thinking like, oh, maybe I should do a Kickstarter. Maybe I should you know go with some publisher. And one of the things that I did was submit to Indiecade, um, uh, which is a, a great service because e- even if you're not selected as an Indiecade finalist or winner, um, they actually try and set up independent developers with publishers or platform holders who are interested in that kind of game. And Sony evidently had said, you know, like they're looking for these kind of side-scrolling action games. So uh, they have, there's like an Indicate business day, and they set up uh, like a 15-minute pitch appointment with me, uh, with Sony. Um, On that same day, I think there's like a bunch of other things, like Dan was was presenting, you know, uh, Wii U development, and uh, uh, Chris Charla was there from Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I kind of went to the different um, people, and uh, I think... I think I ended up pitching to Microsoft and Sony, um, and uh, Sony, you know, they did show some interest, but um, it was it, it took a while before I actually um, kind of got a confirmation. It was I think I did that pitch in September, and then around February I was kind of like, okay, like I guess that fell through. I'm gonna have to do a Kickstarter, and I started doing a new trailer that was going to be my Kickstarter pitch video and I showed that to Nick and he was like, you know, um, you should probably not show this to anyone because we'll want to have this on our PlayStation uh, blog when we announce that your game is pub funded. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I don't have to do a Kickstarter. And that was like a huge relief because of, you know, all the work that goes into those things and you know, all the responsibility that comes with it. We have many developers who have come from Kickstarter. Uh, we know the, we hear the details of uh, running a Kickstarter campaign quite a lot. It, it's pretty intense. Hell, you know, we've run our own Kickstarter and some of our staffers have run Kickstarters or, Keith, yeah. was Kickstarter or Indiegogo? Kickstarter. Yeah. So, it's certainly, we are certainly familiar with how Nerve-wracking it can be. Yeah. Uh, but so, what kind of support has Sony been uh, investing in the game, if any? Um, so, you know, they like aside from generally like you know pointing me in the right direction for how how to get the game published on their store. Um, they uh, do a lot of marketing support where they'll um, give me a couple of kiosks for. Uh, the big trade shows like E3 and PAX and that the recent PlayStation experience. Um, they'll, uh, for example, they 
they they put the game into the in store, like the you know the retail store PS4 kiosks where you can get demos of game um, games. They're in there. Um, they uh, they you know they'll feature the game on the PlayStation blog. Um, so yeah, it's uh, a lot of different things. Yeah, uh, and uh, this is uh, this game is appearing on the PlayStation 4 and the PlayStation Vita, is it not? Correct. Yes, and so it will have cross-buy. That's the plan. And uh, regarding the PlayStation Vita version, is it going to be the same game, or do you had to make? Are you going to have to make sacrifices to get it to run on the portable? Um, we're that's still indeterminate. Um, we're we're kind of waiting for the tech to come through on that um, because uh, basically Axiom Verge runs on Monogame, which is the cross-platform version of XNA. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's a couple of different solutions that you can take to port a Monogame game to Vita. Um, and we're, we're basically waiting to see um, you know, what will be the most viable. Um, and it's, yeah, we're, we're, we're basically waiting on, you know, different, different channels to come to fruition before we can do that. But I, I think if it's going to be, you know, I have to cut something out, it would be like there will be less particles or there will be, you know, maybe less fancy shader effects. But nothing that would actually affect the the gameplay to any great extent. Right, right. No, uh, it, it, it's not going to be like less levels or anything. No, of course not. Uh, so, what can you tell us about the story at this point? So, the game begins uh, with a scientist named Trace, who's working in a laser lab and uh, performing an experiment and. At one point, the uh, experiment goes awry or something happens, um, something indeterminate that he doesn't know, um, and it causes a big explosion and the building collapses. And the next thing that happens is uh, he wakes up in a biomechanical egg in a kind of futuristic or alien environment with no recollection of how he got there. So. Uh, the story is mostly about him trying to figure out how he got there and you know why he's there um, and how he's going to get out of there if that's what he wants to do. Hmm. Uh, from what I've seen so far, it definitely looks interesting. Like uh, I don't know, he meets an AI of some kind. Maybe. Well, it's like it's something I can only quantify in that regard because well, don't know what she is. So. Right. Yeah. He 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 meets, you know, uh, a I I call her a biomechanoid. You know, she's she's something like a cyborg, I guess. Mm -hmm. A very big one. <laughs> yeah. I, I I've seen screenshots. Like she she looks like one of those. Uh, for those who haven't seen the game, uh, if you know Metroid, when you go into one of the elevators, 
It looks like one of those uh, statues that you bypass. That's the best way I can frame it. Yeah. But I've seen it in some other things too, where there's it's it's like a giant face in a wall. Right, right. You know, it, and you know, it, it's certainly you know from what I've seen, uh, the game's interesting to play. Uh, you know, it's like, well, and we're getting low on time here, so just a couple more questions. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, do you have any details on like pricing at this point? Um, not yet. We haven't um, settled on the price, and we haven't uh, announced anything yet. So we'll be making an announcement on that uh, probably around the same time we have an official uh, launch date, which we, we don't have yet either, but um, we're currently targeting spring, so um, you know, hopefully a, a few months from now. Right. And uh, let me see. Uh, there, this game is coming to the PC, yes? That's right. It, it'll be on Steam. Yeah. Now, well, uh, a couple questions in that regard. Is it just going to be Windows, or is it going to be Windows, Mac, Linux? <clears throat> Tom, do you want to take that one? Um, I'm thinking, you know, it, it kind of depends uh, how easy it is for me to port to um, Mac and Linux. It's definitely going to be on Windows. Um, we'll, we'll just see. I've, I've I've calculated I've got about like three or four months uh, to work on that, and you know if I have time, it'll come out on Linux. If I have the money to get myself an expensive ass Mac and develop <laughs> that, it'll come out on Mac. Duly uh, noted. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, uh, you know, can you like, uh, like. How far along would the Windows version be in, after the PlayStation version? Like a month, uh, three months, something like that? Um, yeah, it'd be closer to three months. Hmm. Well, it's like I'm certainly looking for. You know, I don't currently have a PlayStation 4, so I'll be playing it on uh, the Windows system. Yeah. But uh, in, in that, uh, on that final note, uh, we certainly hope that you will. Uh, return to our program around the time of the release, hopefully. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, Dan, I guess we'll, we'll be seeing you next month because we've currently got, uh, you know, we're, we currently got Discord games coming back. We did an interview with them, with them in October, I believe. Uh-huh. And they said, they're, you know, this is something that's predicated on, you know, they said the release date was early 2015, and, you know, we locked down a date. The game not, might not necessarily come out that date, but, you know, it, it's always a hard thing to, you know, like feature a moving target like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah tell me about it. Um, so, yes, I can, I can promise you that Chasm will not be released next month. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so indie games uh, in general are, are notorious for flipping dates just because small team, limited resources. Um, <clears throat> so not too surprising. No, it, it's not. But we'll we'll definitely have Discord games back on, and we'll have you with them. We'll probably delay that to at least April. We have to slot something in because if I don't, it will be taken by someone else. This has happened sure. way too many times. But anyway, aside from that, 
we certainly look forward to both you and Tom coming back, and we can talk about Axiom Verge in a playable state. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, Keith, uh, uh, take us to the, the next segment. Welcome to the topic of discussion. This week, as it so happens, we're talking about the virtual console. And uh, note to our guests, if you want to talk about this, you are welcome to. There's no requirement, but we always enjoy it when our uh, guests do chime in. Yeah. Especially if they actually know what they're talking about, because, I mean, really, look at us. (laughs) I don't, but, but Dan is like the creator of this thing, right? So... No, no, I, I had some stuff to do with it early on, um, but I haven't dealt hands-on with that uh, virtual console in years. Yeah, Th- that's the thing. The virtual console is actually a separate service from Nintendo. And, and indeed, this was the original digital distribution network they thought out. Like, this is the one that uh, was at launch, I think, or at least near launch. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, back on the Wii, it uh, featured a whole slew of systems uh, from NES, Super NES. Okay. Uh, Later on, Genesis, uh, TurboGrafx-16, MSX, uh, you know, just a whole range of classic consoles. And now it's available on both the 3DS and Wii U. Oh, ooh, who dropped was not I. Uh, I can still hear you, so I don't think I dropped. Keith dropped. Oh, oh yeah, Keith has got the dots. Um, anyway, so... Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so the Wii U and the 3DS have their own... Like, each virtual console service is different. Uh, but... Well, Dan, what uh, what parts of the Virtual Console did you have involvement in? So I was involved in Virtual Console um, really early on um, with <clears throat> things like um, doing a, uh, a market research study, trying to figure out what the pricing uh, should be like. Um, there was a lot of debate should um, some of the better-known games like um, you know, the ones that we knew people are really going to be interested in, like Super Mario Brothers or the original Legend of Zelda, um, you know, should we price those, you know, higher because they're going to be in more demand and, and some of the lesser-known titles maybe a little bit lower. Um, and so um, it wasn't solely – hello? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I, a whole bunch of sound just went away. Um, uh, Thomas so, left. <laughs> oh, okay. So he had some, he had some static. Um so yeah, so there was there was a lot of discussion that um, I was involved in. Um, I advocated for just having uh, one set price per platform. So NES games were one price, Super NES another price, and N64 games 
uh, yet another price, um, and then did a bunch of market research about um, what kind of price points might be appropriate um, for, for those different platforms. <coughs> also, um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. Um, some of the other stuff I did was uh, working with um, a lot of the old rights owners trying to track down for games that we were interested in having on virtual console, um, kind of finding out who currently owned the IP um, and who had the digital distribution rights to it. Um, and, and that was actually very challenging because, you know, back in the day, a lot of the contracts that were written, um, obviously they didn't have digital distribution rights called out because that wasn't a thing back then. And a lot of the contracts would say like, you know, a developer was creating a game for say Konami or, or whoever, and you know, Konami might have the rights to distribute it for 10 years, which everyone thought was, you know, essentially infinity um, because after that point it would be a new system and, you know, those games would just disappear into the ether. Um, but, you know, for anyone, you know, who had that kind of feel like Konami no longer had the rights, so we had to go find who the, you know, the original developer was. And usually a lot of those companies were out of business by, you know, 20 years later or 30 years later. So um, I remember there was one where um, a, an intermediary actually tracked down uh, the developer of one game and he was not quite a hermit, but he was like kind of living on a beach. He was no longer associated with the games industry in any way. And, and they were able to track him down somehow and um, get him to, to sign over the rights, the digital distribution rights um, in exchange for, um, you know, some percentage of the revenue. I don't know what they worked out, but yeah, that was always an interesting challenge for, for some of those older companies that no longer exist. Right. I can think of a few, like uh, Load Runner comes to mind, Tosai uh, published. Yep. You know, or uh, again, a, a, a rather obscure brawler called Brawl Brothers, I believe, released by a company called Hamster. Now, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you got uh, games like that on the, the virtual consoles. Yeah. Uh, well, how did you strike the ba how, how did it was the balance struck between the popular and the uh, obscure? Well, I think um, the way it worked, most of it was driven out of Japan. Um, so NCL, that's uh, Nintendo Japan, the headquarters, would put together their list of the games that they thought were going to be the highest priority. And then they would send that list out to the local subsidiaries to get their feedback on, you know, is this, are these games going to be important for your market? Um, are there any other games uh, that for your market that you would like to see on here that aren't on that list? Um, and generally, to the extent that one game could be redone for the worldwide market, those games were prioritized higher than games that might only be popular in, say, Italy. Um, so, so that's kind of how the, it was a, like a, a back and forth discussion. <coughs> Excuse me. And there are a lot of employees at Nintendo um, who have been there for over 20 years. So it was interesting, like um, talking to them. Like they, they actually have very fresh memories of a lot of these classic titles. They worked on some of them. They remember, like you know, back in the day when they were doing testing, they they worked on them or when they were working in the call center, um, they, they would give 
pro tips on how to beat certain areas. So, so the, you know, a lot of people knew a lot of these games really well. And, and like for me, um, you know, I, I remembered a lot of the games, but not all of them. And so it was, um, it was interesting to kind of see the depth of the knowledge inside Nintendo. Yeah, they, from what I understand, they keep a lot of stuff around. Like, I, I remember that one you asked where they uh, showed the original Legend of Zelda design map. Yeah. So, but, well, not every virtual console is created the same. Because, you know, like, uh, the Wii U virtual console has different content than the Wii or the 3DS. Right. Yeah. And... Now another question I, I do have is who develops who de, who does development on the virtual console stuff? That's all handled uh, by Japan, <clears throat> by uh, Nintendo Japan. Ah, I, I was wondering because I heard like some some people thought it was NSTC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, but uh, you know, good to know. And well, it's like Dan, what are your thoughts on the current virtual console, the Wii U and the 3DS one? Um, I think they're great. I, um, <clears throat> I would love to see more content, of course, um, but I think uh, probably more than a lot of people who kind of complain online about, like, why isn't this game coming out? Why isn't that coming out? I, I, I have a little bit more insight into the complexities of why uh, certain games can't come out. Um, Either there's technical challenges or rights challenges or, um, you know, all kinds of things. Because um, um, a lot of times people will say, like, you know, I can, I can download all these games on, you know, a main system and, you know, just emulate it right there on my PC. Why is it taking Nintendo so long to, to do it? And, you know, and if you do something like main, which obviously not legal, first of all, but um, yeah. second of all, you know, you, you get a very iffy experience. Like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it crashes. Um, and a lot of work, uh, surprising a lot of, uh, surprising amount of work goes into uh, testing each title to make sure that um, that it works as smoothly as possible. And, and you would think, like, you know, you, you do it once and it works for all the games, and unfortunately it doesn't quite work that way. And, um there are people smarter than me who know why it doesn't work that way. Um, I just know that it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, granted, there are, like, some real mysteries of the virtual console, like N64 games on the Wii U. No one seems to know why that hasn't appeared yet. I'm not yeah, those are, those are tough to do. Yeah. Um, that's, that's all I know is that they are tough to do. I don't know why they're tough to do. Yeah. It's like in... No. Admittedly, when you, when you deal with direct emulation, sometimes, well, like, uh, okay, a problem I've been having with recent Game Boy Advance uh, games is the multiplayer. No, as in there is no multiplayer. Uh, if you buy Super Mario, if you buy Mario Kart Super Circuit or Mario Kart Advance on the virtual console, you're, uh, in fact, Nintendo's own website lists these as uh, single-player games. And these are games rather noted for their multiplayer. And, and the reason for that is the Game Boy Advance used the link cable. And there doesn't seem to be any good way to emulate that easily. Right. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have been upset about this. But, you know, it's like I, I'm not exactly sure if, there's a, if, there, if they can overcome that hurdle or not. 
But yeah, I know that philosophically there's there's a lot of um, discussion about like bringing things. Uh, I, I remember in the early days of Virtual Console, there's for like different multiplayer games, uh, there's a lot of discussion of like, well, you could take this one multiplayer game and just add in some networking code and it could be playable over the internet and you could play with your friends um, and kind of like a more modern title. And, and the decision was made that we really, um, and I guess it's no longer we, Nintendo really didn't want to go back and um, change the experience. So um, everyone really wanted to try to keep the experience as true to the original as possible. So sometimes you, you get into situations where, um, where that breaks down. There, there's absolutely no way because of the hardware differences um, to make it a one-to-one. Um, so, so I think rather than kind of develop something new that wasn't in the original, they would rather cut something out um, to make sure that what is in there remains pure. Right. Uh, right. So not to monopolize the time here, but, uh, you know, uh, other people, Gollich, uh, Petty Fan Ogre, Keith, uh, what are your experiences with the virtual console, if any? Well, um, I've been having a, I've been enjoying it because uh, back in the NES and SNES days, uh, there were a lot of games that I really that I saw in Nintendo Power or saw in other things that looked really cool, and I didn't get a chance to play. And several of those games are on the Virtual Console now, and some of them were um, on the Wii even and on the 3DS, obviously. Right. So, so I've had a chance to play Super Metroid and Demon's Crest and a few other ones that I had never been able to play before and wouldn't have. Yeah. I know some people complain about the glorious digital future. Like, uh, for example, in regards to the virtual uh, console, Tetris uh, for the Game Boy just got taken off because of rights issues. Uh, you know, the, the rights expired and they can no longer sell the game. And you know, people are upset because, you know, once a game goes out of print on the digital storefront, it's, you know, it's no longer for sale. I will note yeah. that if you actually buy the game, you still have it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as far as I understand. Like Xbox Live, WiiWare, you know, Steam, what have you, you, you'll usually still have the game. But, you know... Right. And I don't know about um, on Xbox Live, but I think sometimes even their multiplayer function is still intact if they have one. Right. I think that it goes down to, like, servers. But, you know, that's the downside. Because, you know, uh, you know, a physical copy of, say, Deadpool for the Xbox 360 still exists. You can still buy that. You know, might be a little difficult, but you can still get it secondhand. On the other hand, we have games, well, just to name some of the rare games that have come to the virtual console lately, Mega Man X3, Mega Man 7, uh, Demon's Crest, Gargoyle's Quest 2, and so on and so forth. Like, if a rare game hits the, the digital console service, you can actually play that game legally, and you don't have to sell off an arm and a leg. And heck, Shantae was made available, and that was, like, yeah. incredibly badly distributed due to, you know the next generation of consoles had been out for, like, months at least, right. possibly years by the time it was released. But, well, that and WayForward was really small back then. Well, it, it, was, 
It was because of the Game Boy Color being out of date. It, it was 2002, and the Game Boy Advance had already gotten released the previous year. That's what he's saying. Ah. No. Not why the print run was really small. You know, they they were still doing a Game Boy Color game out of obligation. Yeah. But yeah, it's like uh, Shantae, the Game Boy Color one, is currently on the Virtual Console. And presumably that's a game that's never going to vanish from the Virtual Console, you know, unless the service itself vanishes. Yeah, WayForward seems to be all up on that. Yeah. yeah. And, like, uh, you know, to give you an example of how digital distribution of classic games can be a godsend, don't look up on eBay and look up Earthbound. Yeah. Oh, that's another one. I actually did play Earthbound on the Super Nintendo. I rented it once. Yeah. Uh, did not get very far. But now I have it on my Wii U, so I can, you know, actually play it at my own pace, which is very slow, but... Um. <laughs> right, and... Unfortunately, it does not come with the uh, the player's guide. You know, isn't there, like, a digital player's guide? Um, it comes with di- it comes with digital instructions, but it's not like the full off oh, player's okay. guide the original version came up. Came I, I see. Mm. And that's that's something that kind of differs from service service bonus features. Yeah, but that's a thing for another time. But yeah, it, it's like you can get Earthbound for ten dollars. Yeah, good luck finding that physical copy for that price. Yeah, it's like, if you do, make sure it's legal. <laughs> and it, it's also you know, having some have argued, you know, having a digital digital version will bring the price of the physical down. No, it won't because those versions are still rare. You know, just because like just because another version of a game comes out doesn't drive the price of that version down. It's something to do with the collector's market specifically. Mm. You know, it, like uh, there's a there's a game the Neo Geo I can't remember right now, but the point is. The North American version is really common, and the uh, European version is very rare. So that one's a lot more expensive. Uh, but anyway, so uh, other memories of the virtual console. Um, well, mine's kind of similar to the Golics, because like, growing up, I only had a Sega Genesis. You know, I never really got to play anything Nintendo. So now on like my 3DS, I have um, Punch Out, Tetris, um, Shantae, um, The Legend of Zelda Game Boy games, and I also have like the Super Mario Brothers RPG thing, um, Twin Me, a whole bunch of other stuff that I never got to play growing up. Yeah. These services do allow you to live games that you ne- you never would have played. Also, uh, at least the Wii Virtual Console has a bunch of imports. Yeah, that's another thing I wish they were doing more on the Wii U and the 3DS. But because like the Wii the Wii U like has a few imports. Like I know Lost Levels is on there, and uh, didn't one of the Sin and Punishment games put on that? Well, yeah, that's the thing. You know. Uh, Sin and Punishment finally got its release on the Virtual Console. This was a game that was supposed to come out in about uh, the year 2000, but from what I've uh, read, it got canceled because it was the lowest-selling Nintendo published game of the N64. And so 
you know, it, it's one of those games that gained cult status because it was by Treasure. And, you know, from what I understand, like, the virtual console version of Sin and Punishment did so well that uh, Nintendo brought over uh, the sequel, Star Successor. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, you know, there were virtual console success stories. You know. And, you know, th- there are other import games like uh, Mylon's do re mi I'm trying to remember. You know, it's the sequel to uh, Mylon's Secret Castle, only it's not terrible. I, I just really hate Mylon's Secret Castle. Always have. Always will. Uh, anyway, so we're we're getting low on time on this topic. So, any final thoughts on the virtual console at this stage? Um, go buy its games. Well, I, I think one of the I think one of the things we didn't cover, well, uh, possibly is the uh, debate about between uh, price differences. But uh, well, uh, I th- I think it's still I personally think it's worth it. And I'm glad that it's something that they're doing with things that they own and with as many other things as they can get permission to do from other people, basically. Well, price differences is such a subjective thing. You know, right. It's like, you know, $10 for Earthbound is a steal. You know, $5 for Super Mario Brothers, most people will tell you it's a ripoff. You know, it, 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 and and and, te- and Tetris being taken off the virtual console. Oh no! Whatever shall I? Oh wait, it's on Google. Like twelve of them for free. Well, it's more. Unfortunately, Ubisoft has the license now, and they can't the Tetris. They can't yeah. get that right. You know, but that's all I'll say about that in this case. But yeah, I just I just meant like there are a million versions of Tetris on everything. Well, yeah. But I, I'm more like the, the PlayStation 4 version of Tetris apparently wasn't very good. Oh, well. But anyway, so that's it for this week. Be, uh, I do want to thank uh, Tom and Dan for stopping by. Always appreciated, and we're certainly looking forward to having you back on the program. Yeah, yeah thank thanks, you so thanks. much. And thanks for the insight, <laughs> extra insight from someone who actually was a little bit involved with Virtual Console. Cause yeah, that's well, always appreciated. Yeah. We're all oh, yeah. subjective. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, we don't have, we never saw the inside. <laughs> but anyway, so be sure to tune in next week when we will have Forrest Bowler of the Molasses Flood. Got to admit that's probably one of my favorite names for a company ever. And they, I assume that's a reference to the actual thing that happened. I'm assuming it's a reference to the Great Molasses Flood of 1919, but we'll have to ask them that. Yeah. Yeah, it's but, on the question list. Yeah. And they'll be showcasing their game. Uh, was, uh, had a successful Kickstarter run a couple months ago. It's a, uh, it's a, in their description, a roguelike river journey through the backwaters of the forgotten post-societal America. Forge, craft, and evade predators for the PC and Mac. It's called the Flame in the Flood. No. And... Like the Kickstarter video looked really interesting, so I'm certainly looking forward to uh, featuring that, and hopefully you will all join us next week. But until then, all I can do is wish you good gaming. See you next week, everybody. <laughs>
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.